And for more on the riot in Washington yesterday, here's our friend Dave Meslin. He is the author of Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up, and he joins us now here on Global News Radio. Dave, good afternoon. Happy New Year. Good afternoon, Jeff. Always great to, to uh, chat with you. Likewise, and my first question for you, what was going through your mind watching the events unfold yesterday afternoon from the U.S. Capitol? I think like so many of us, I had two really conflicting emotions. One was shock, right? We're, we're watching something that in so many ways is unprecedented. On the other hand, I think we all saw this coming, and it almost feels like an inevitable um, an inevitable um, amplification of what's been happening for, for four years. I mean, where else could it go? And it was almost as if Trump had very carefully choreographed the whole thing, but doing it in a way where he didn't look like, you know, he wasn't the one at the window smashing glass. Uh, but I think he knew what was coming down the pipe. Um, I think he chose his words carefully, so he had an out, but also... He, I think he intentionally incited that, and that, that's no surprise from what we know about him and his, his behavior and his level of emotional maturity. Let's be honest here. All right. Well, I'm going to skip ahead because I was going to ask you this later in the interview, but uh, since you mentioned his level of emotional maturity and maybe even, you know, some are once again questioning, questioning sorry, his mental stability, uh, calls are growing for Trump's removal. I mean, social media, they have censured Donald Trump. Does the U.S. Congress need to do the same? Do you think that the U.S. can survive another 13 days of Donald Trump? I, th I think the question is, why did it take uh, last night's events for this question to be taken seriously? If, if we're to agree that at the point when a president is clearly not mentally or emotionally fit to be in the leadership position of a superpower. Uh, if, if a president reaches that point and we believe that cabinet and the VP should take action, what have they been waiting for? I mean, there's nothing about yesterday that really changes the context that much. I mean, yes, there's, there's four deaths now, um, but that's not the big change. I mean, I think it just became so visual, the type of violence and and toxic divisiveness that Trump has intentionally been pushing since day one. And no president has ever really done that. Um, so, yeah, of course they should. But, I mean, what's the point now? I mean, that's, it's pretty frustrating for them to suggest that, 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 that it's appropriate now, but it wasn't a year ago or two years ago. Well, you look at, you study democracies, written about them, and uh, the U.S., as you mentioned, has been so divisive, Dave, for the last four years in particular. Do you think, because I think there's a bit of a hope out there that at the very least, if there's, I don't know, a silver lining to this, that yesterday was a tipping point for that nation? Well, I think I think that's to be seen. I think, I think Pence managed himself very well. He actually looked incredibly dare I say, presidential, um, when when the numbers were finally added up. Um, this could be something that tips the point, absolutely. I think that's what we're all hoping for. And I, I say that in a completely nonpartisan way. I think we all want to see a lot more respect and maturity and thoughtfulness from everyone right across the political spectrum. I think we should also be careful not to get too confident up here in Canada, because 
the real question is, why did people let it get so far, right? And the way you stop something from reaching those boiling points is by dealing with it as early as you can. And that means that every time we see politicians in the U.S. or in Canada acting in ways that you wouldn't tolerate in any other workplace, we should be calling it out. And even though we're nowhere near having armed mobs attacking the House of Commons or Queen's Park, um, we do have behavior that is completely normalized in our political spaces where grown adults mock each other, laugh each other, um, spread rumors and lies and use fear tactics to intentionally divide people. And once that becomes normalized, we're really on the same path. So instead of waiting for the explosion to happen and for people to be literally being shot and dying, why don't we challenge ourselves to ask whether we've also let it cross a certain threshold already right here? As soon as you accept the idea that we're going to hold politicians to a lower standard of behavior and that behavior that we would never accept from our friends, family, or coworkers is just okay for MPs and MPPs and MLAs, we're heading down a really slippery slope. And that's one of the topics I explored heavily in my book, the degree to which politics has become a blood sport. And I think we've already completely normalized that in Canada. And I think it's something we should look at. It's not cool. It's not helpful for any of us. We're, we all lose when politicians treat each other like children. Well, not only politicians, but it trickles down. There's a trickle-down effect to us as voters in the electorate as well. And you see it on social media that we've become so entrenched in just uh, our beliefs and it's can only be our way and that we're not hearing the, the other side and that compromise is seen as weakness or uh, a dirty word. Are these the sort of things that we got to get past? And is that the way forward, not only for the United States, but uh, as you mentioned here in Canada and for democracies around the world? You nailed it. Exactly. I mean, the, the history of our species does involve a lot of conflicts being resolved on the battlefield. And I think that the, the challenge of our time is, you know, we've all agreed that democracy is good and ballots are good and voting is good. Can we take it a step further and actually really shed the battlefield environment? Does the House of Commons have to operate as a battlefield? Do elections have to be seen as polarized battlefields between good and evil, where we all have to pick a team? Can we reach a point where we see politics as a discussion and dialogue amongst, amongst mature, thoughtful people who listen to each other and are all trying to do the right thing for everyone? I don't think that should be a lot to ask for. I mean, as I hear the words coming out of my mouth, I can tell that I can hear that I sound like, you know, some uh, naive, overly optimistic, flaky hippie. But I mean, why? Why is it so, um, so ridiculous to suggest that our political spaces could look and sound like any boardroom or family dinner where there's there's debate, there's arguments, we don't always agree with things, but we try and respect each other. And when there is conflict, we bring people in to de-escalate conflict. You know, if a family isn't getting along, they will sometimes even go to counseling. Uh, married couples go to counseling. Corporations will hire people in their HR unit to deal with conflict. And in our political environment, we just think, oh, they're fighting. That's what they're supposed to do. That's their job. I, I hope my side wins. And like I said before, we all lose 
when we have 338 people in Ottawa who spend most of their time bickering and fighting and yelling and laughing and mocking, and, and that's exactly what they do during question period, we all lose. Blue, orange, green, red, we all lose. Dave Meslin, great insight as always. Dave, appreciate the time and the conversation. Thanks so much. Jeff, thanks so much. Have a great year. Take care. All right, be well. Dave Meslin is the author of Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. It was back in the first wave that we promised you we were going to stay on this story, and we are honoring that again today. As sadly, the horror inside the province's long-term care homes continues. At Tender Care in Scarborough alone, 71 people have died in just the past few weeks. It's unbelievable that this is continuing. Dr. Patricia Spindell is the co-founder of Seniors for Social Action, and she joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Spindell, good afternoon. Thanks for your time. Yes, good afternoon to you. Really appreciate you coming on. I want to start with the uh, vaccine because the provincial government has announced that they're going to accelerate vaccines in hotspots for uh, long-term care. Is that the ultimate answer here, is the vaccine for long-term care? Well, I think it's part of the answer, that's for sure. But I think the real answer is getting rid of these large institutions because this this congregate uh, living where they're forcing people to go into institutions because there's a complete absence of alternatives in the community. There's just there's a dysfunctional home care system or you're stuck with an institution. And that's just not acceptable. Ontario is falling well behind progressive jurisdictions all across the world. And they have they have completely um, stopped their reliance on these large institutions. And we need to do the same thing. Have we, in essence, kind of offloaded that work? And we've had this discussion numerous times over the past six or eight months, the public versus uh, private uh, when it comes to uh, long-term care. Is it time that that's fully made public? Because as we well know, the, the numbers are completely out of whack when it comes to uh, COVID patients in those uh, private LTCs. They're completely out of whack. And basically, we know through studies, we know through press reports, we, knew through, we know through the military reports that COVID numbers, infection and death rates are so much higher in the chain-operated for-profit facilities. And one of the, the problems we've got now is we've got basically real estate investment trusts are picking up long-term care beds, and they're not even managing them themselves. They're having other big companies manage them instead. You saw that in Orchard Villa, You're, and that, that had the, the highest death rate in the province in the, in the first wave. We're seeing it again. We're seeing companies like Universal Care come in. We're seeing Arch Capital come in and pick up long-term care beds and then having Universal Care run them. That's just not appropriate. <laughs> On any level. You know, human yeah. beings are not commodities, basically, is what we're saying. And they shouldn't be commodified for profit, for other people's profit. This should be a care system, not a for-profit real estate investment trust system. Do you believe that the federal government needs to play a larger role here? Do they need to, to come in and take some action? I think what the federal government needs to do is they need to start saying, we're going to fund a federal community care system a nonprofit community care system, and by that I mean don't make the mistakes that were made with the first, um, with with the Health Care Act initially, where you have hospitals that are not for profit, but they're contracting out to for profit companies all the time. If we're going to have a nonprofit system, then have a nonprofit system of in home care first of all, and fund it properly, and community residential care. We need to have 
staffed apartment programs, staffed condo programs, staffed community group homes, which are so much better for people who have Alzheimer's disease. For example, a small staffed setting that's a household setting operated by a community agency. What's happened in Ontario is we've got these silos. So we have the long-term care system and we have the Ministry of Health, but what we don't have is we don't have government partnering with municipalities, partnering with community care and social agencies to deliver the right kind of care. The federal government has a role to play here. They should be fully funding a community care system so that people can either age in place or age in small community residences operated by not-for-profit organizations. All right, but it's been the experience of your organization and others uh, we've talked to, but uh, give us your take on this, that the provincial government has not been collaborative uh, when it comes to long-term care and finding some real solutions, uh, you feel? The Ontario government has an addiction to for-profit institutions. I mean, basically what they're doing is they're actually expanding the institutional long-term care system, and they're giving additional bids to companies like Southbridge, which ran Orchard Villa, or owned Orchard Villa, and, you know, they're allowing them to have even more beds. You don't reward people where there's been high infection and death rates. You know, the public is legitimately questioning this now. They're saying this is rather strange behavior on the part of a government, that they would, instead of collaborating with the nonprofit system and with municipalities, Instead, they're, they're foisting much more money for redevelopment of beds, for additional beds, all on the institutional system. And now we have the phenomenon of campuses of care, which are also having COVID outbreaks because they're still institutions. You can make them look nicer, but that doesn't mean that they're not still institutions. They're still going to have the same kinds of problems. We have to get out of that system entirely, get into the smaller You know, the grassroots kind of things. You know, if your mom or dad becomes frail, they should be able to be cared for. If they can't be cared for at home, they should be cared for in small community residences in their own neighborhoods and communities. They shouldn't be, at the end of their lives, moved out into a big institution where they don't know anybody. They're subjected to assembly line care, and they're exploited for profit, for somebody else's profit. That's just not acceptable in this province anymore. And is that essentially the problem, Dr. Spindell? I mean, a lot of people are scratching their heads, shaking their heads, actually shaking their fists in anger that the second wave seems to be the same as the first when it comes to our elderly in long-term care. But despite the fact that money has been thrown at long-term care for more PSWs, which, yes, are needed, sorely needed, really, at the end of the day, the problem is that the, the system is equipped, as we've been talking about, to, to fail when it comes to something uh, as devastating as COVID, that uh, we just need public instead of private long-term care that uh, really does put health care first. You know, the reason why we're seeing this is that absolutely nobody has been dealing with the root causes of the problem. The root causes of the problem is we're institutionalizing too many people, many more than, than a lot of other countries in the world. The second problem is that it's for-profit. Uh, and the third problem is we have extremely weak oversight as well. We don't have a, a forceful inspection system. And, of course, it can't be forceful because if you revoke those licenses, where are you going to put the people? If you don't have an alternative care system available for them, there's nowhere to put them. So, you you know, one basically depends on the other. So eliminate the big institutions in favor of the smaller community care 
programs, eliminate profit from the system, and then you can bring in a very effective inspection system, and that will improve long-term care. Throwing more money at it constantly, whether it's for staffing or anything else, and believe me, I believe just as much as anyone else that the people who work in long-term care should be paid fairly, um, but they, should, they shouldn't have to work in dangerous institutions to begin with. They should be able to work in smaller community care settings where they can actually provide personalized care to people. All right. A lot of what we're talking about here is foundational, foundational change. We know that doesn't happen overnight. And there is a need, a need right now to make sure that things have changed and change because, as I just mentioned off the top, at tender care in Scarborough, 71 people alone have died in just the past uh, few weeks. So what is the short-term solution here, if there is one? Uh, I want to go back to vaccinations. Is it just to get those vaccines to the PSWs and to a residence as quickly and as efficiently as possible? I'm really glad you asked that because there is a short-term solution. Call the municipality today. Call the City of Toronto today. Tell them about the hundreds of condos that are available right now for rent um, within five minutes of that facility. Call them, get them to rent them, say we'll, we'll provide the initial funding just like they're doing for the for-profit chains. We'll provide the initial funding for them and, and then Bring in your, redeploy your staff, bring in agency staff if you need to in the meantime, but then hire people to backfill all of that and bring people out of those facilities rather than put, sending more staff into dangerous facilities, bring the people out. Condo programs, apartment programs, how long does it take to rent an apartment? And then you've got to just get your staff in there. And you can bring people out, like, literally within days. The, that's the short-term solution is get them the heck out of there. <laughs> don't, right. put more, don't put more professionals in danger. Get the residents out because that's how you deal with a staffing crisis. If you reduce the number of residents until the staffing levels are appropriate in the facility, that's another way that you deal with staffing. And, you know, having the city as a partner or having community care agencies, they've got the Healthy Communities Group in Scarborough. They should be partnering with them right now to be renting condos and to be starting to staff up and getting people out of there. All right. Dr. Patricia Spindell is the co-founder of Seniors for Social Action. Dr. Spindell, again, appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Really mindful eating. Yeah, let's talk talk a bit about mindful and intuitive eating because I really kind of got turned on to this. Uh, funny enough, over the uh, holiday because you know you weren't getting together with uh, family and having those uh, big meals, mm -hmm. kind of really think about my my diet a little more. And I really like this uh, this idea about mindful or intuitive eating. Uh, can you explain it for us? Yeah, so this concept's been around for quite some time, but. Um, I think a lot of people are turning away from these really restrictive diets, like such as the keto diet or certain diets where they really try to demonize a certain macronutrient. Um, and we see that with carbohydrates a lot. So with intuitive eating and mindful eating, it's really embracing foods in all different forms, but also to tuning in and asking yourself, how do you really feel? Like, are you really craving this? Do you really need it? Um, why are you eating it? Is there a pattern when you're constantly craving or you're constantly wanting a particular food? Um, that's called mindful eating or intuitive eating. It's really kind of tuning in and tapping into your body and self and asking yourself, like, how is this going to support you? How is this food 
or beverage really going to support you. And what we find with mindful and intuitive eating is that often a lot of the foods we, we crave um, lack to some type of imbalance in terms of vitamins and nutrients or minerals. So uh, intuitive eating, mindful eating, uh, we'll see more and more of that coming up this year as well. And again, with mindful and intuitive eating, we don't beat ourselves up around if we have some chocolate or we have some chips. We enjoy it in the moment, and then we uh, go and we eat healthy again. So that's a, a huge difference you'll see for mindful and intuitive eating. It's not a diet. It's more of a practice and a lifestyle habit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, I got up this morning and I had first and foremost my water because you got to hydrate after a good restful night's sleep. And then I had my regular uh, black cup of coffee. But then I thought, you know, my body is really craving something. And normally I would try to keep up my intermittent fast, uh, if you will, and get to, I don't know, 10 or uh, noon just before we come on the, the show here. But I found that that was really hurting me my energy. And I listened to my body uh, today. And for some reason, I just felt like I need a couple slices of toast. Mm-hmm. And normally I would not have bread. But I thought, you know what? I'm listening to my body today. I'm in tune with it. I'm going to do some intuitive eating. And I had that toast and I've had a healthier lunch. And I think that that ends up making sure that you don't end up binge eating later on uh, down the line uh, later in the day. Yeah, that's what we find. And that's what we see a lot uh, as a nutritionist. I see that a lot with restrictive dieting is that when you take out sugar or chocolate or cake or something that you think you're not supposed to have where we demonize these foods, what happens is we constantly end up craving it and then we binge eat. So 100%, Jeff, if you're feeling like you want that toast in the morning, have it. I mean, your body's craving it. You need that energy to start the day. Why not go for it? I mean, you we all know our limits and we know if you really are intuitive and you tap into uh, what you're eating, how you feel before, during, and after you eat, I mean, that's all around intuitive eating. Just really tapping in and asking yourself, how does this make me feel? Is it nourishing you? Is it helping you thrive? Is it giving you energy? Is it helping you feel good. All right. Another big wellness trend for 2021 is something I know that you partook in over the holiday break, a a digital detox. Uh, Tell us about that. And uh, how did it feel? How did it go for you? (laughs) Honestly, I couldn't have felt any better. I found um, not just even with the news, but there's so much negative energy with social media and different types of things that we're exposed to right now in terms of information or even on TV. And I felt like really shutting off and deciding that I was going to set some boundaries around digital consumption really helped me. And it really made me think about uh, going into 2021, um, how I want to be uh, using like social media and consuming digital content uh, with intention. So I found for me, it really helped detox my mind. And I know for a lot of people as well, that really helps. Um, Having these non-negotiables, if you want to have Sundays where there's absolutely no technology and just getting out in nature more, I know for me, that's something I really try to be mindful of and spend as much time as I can in nature when I'm not working, uh, going for long walks, grounding, doing the meditations, really tuning into me. I found that really helped. And I also was journaling a lot more uh, instead of being on my device. So I find digital detoxes is going to be more and more of a trend we're going to see this year. And it really helps us disconnect from a lot of the noise and negativity that's around us. Yeah, honestly, one of the best things you can do is stop with the mindless scrolling, right? It's mm-hmm. so easy, and I don't know why it's so addictive. I'm sure they've done research on this in the Twitters and Facebooks of the world. They know what they're doing, but, you know, you could sit there and just flick through endless reams of material that really mean nothing to you at the end of the day, and then yeah. you look at that time on a per-weekly basis that you could have been using for something that's so much more beneficial or fruitful for you. 
Mm -hmm. 100%. The concept that they called it last year in 2020 was doom scrolling. Um, So I'm not sure what they're going to call it for 2021. But you're right, Jeff. I mean, the way social media, we have these notifications on our phone, on our app, whether it's Instagram and Facebook, we can get notifications when someone likes a post or follows us. Or So it constantly, I mean, they're designed so we can constantly stay on the apps longer. So really trying to set limits and boundaries as to how long you really uh, want to stay on these on your device and even consume this content. Because, again, ask yourself, is this really nourishing you? Does this make you feel good when you're constantly scrolling through all this content? All right. And just finally, I want to touch on this one. Another big wellness trend for 2021 is goal setting. But this mm-hmm. is flexible goal setting. Uh, what do we mean exactly by that? Um So I think this year, especially, a lot of people are over the whole, you know, new year, new year resolutions. Um, And really, they want to set realistic resolutions. So micro goals or micro resolutions, we're going to see that more and more for wellness trends for 2021 and being a lot more gentle with ourselves. I mean, not having these uh, huge goals where we have to lose X amount of weight in X amount of time, but really putting things into perspective. So knowing like what's really important, we need to remain more flexible, intuitive, and having these micro goals will end up, I think it's, it's for most of us in any case, will lead to those longer results. And that's the same thing when it comes to trying to change your diet and your lifestyle, um, going towards a healthier lifestyle. It, I find it works best when it's baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about trying to lose the quarantine 15, and if you lose only 12, I say only 12, instead of 15, you shouldn't deem that a failure. And to your point, just set some mini goals, right? Get to five pounds first, and then can I take it to seven and add on to that? And you get to double digits, Uh, a lot easier way to do it and a lot easier on you and your mind. A hundred percent. Yeah. Laura DeSantis, great conversation. As always, again, uh, happy new year and thanks for happy these great wellness tips for the uh, coming year. Appreciate it. Thank All you. All right. Laura DeSantis, you can find her on Instagram at go with your gut.